So iron's toxic um, if we have too much of it. So that's probably a good point to raise is um, that there is too much of a good thing and, and athletes looking to improve their iron stores only really need to do so if they have compromised iron stores because too much iron isn't, isn't a good thing. You start to store that iron in different organs to, to be able to you know, have it in the system. And welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Steph Gaskell. How are things with you, Steph? Things are good, Alan. Things are good. I'm, yeah, having fun in the lab uh, and, yeah, keeping keeping busy. And it's great to have that uh, study uh, continuing to go on um, and hopefully any runners or triathletes I still need some more participants so um, if anyone is keen to find out about how when we exercise the longer that we exercise how that impacts on their gut um, yeah please shoot me a message and um, I can tell you more about that study yeah and you can check out our social media at the long munch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, because we've got the, the information up there about the study and how to get in contact with you for that study as well. So that's good. Um, you're able to get out and do a bit of more running yourself as well? Yes, getting some consistency again. And um, my flatmate, I've got um, Kate Gifford, uh, always keeps tabs on me. So, <laughs> you know, if I go out for a run and I'm like a bit inconsistent with my pacing, she's on it and she's watching if i miss a gym session or a strength session i'm i'm in the bad book so i've got a good person watching me yeah and you've got a cavoodle that can help with pacing as well yeah we were out on the weekends actually down warburton and um cooper the cavoodle ran 16ks with me so yeah yeah he loves he loves a run and then i chucked him in the there was like a cattle trough i chucked him in there and gave him a, a dip in water I was going to say you didn't jump in the river afterwards. I did actually. I, I myself jumped in, um, yeah, a, a nice lake down there. Yeah, such a beautiful spot there. Yeah, yeah. And what about you? What have you been up to? Um, just working a lot, really. I mean, semester starting with, with the uni, so sort of getting back into teaching again. Uh, obviously, yeah. you know, the sports nutrition course is still going on for for Sports Dietitians Australia that I've been involved with um, coordinating, so that's been good. Um, and then, yeah, looking forward, hopefully to setting up for um, some lab studies as the weather cools down a bit because yeah. um, the study we're doing looks at sweat responses and things so we don't want people to be heat acclimatized or acclimated so we need to wait till the weather here in melbourne is consistently cool yeah. um and so yeah we'll have maybe some more information about that in an upcoming podcast about you know when we start to recruit for that but that's a, yeah. a big um, sodium replacement study so looking at what happens when you replace all the sodium in your sweat or you don't um, yeah. over five hours of running in the heat so it's yeah in the heat um with movies yeah <laughs> you, you get to watch uh, yes. or podcasts whatever whatever floats your boat yeah um yeah. we try and keep people entertained Five yeah. hours on a treadmill is never that exciting, no. uh, but a lot of yep. cool data you get from it. Yeah. You, know, you learn a lot about your hydration, about your body temperature, um, about your electrolyte needs and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, exactly. that'd be good. Yep. And mm. it's not five hours. Like, I mean, it's five hours, but you're, you know, jumping off and 
getting yeah. assessed and um, yeah, yeah. That, we're always taking yeah. measurements throughout yeah. so, any of these studies that we do yeah. so you know three hours sounds like a lot of five hours but you're right it's never continuously three or five hours or whatever it yeah. is because you, you stop Get in to jumps. put sweat patches on or off or to take a blood sample to um, you know measure your, your carbohydrate or fat use stick the mask on and then take mm. it off again mm. weigh yourself you know there's all this different stuff that's always going on in any of these studies so yeah and um, I mean it's so valuable in terms of what you know, you'll be able to get out of that research for athletes um, having a better understanding of the, um, you know, sodium sweat re replacement for, for ultra endurance. It's a, um, a very, very common question we get asked. So, um, yeah. Um, Which is why it'll be no doubt an upcoming episode. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Awesome. All right. Well, here on the Long Munch, uh, as we've pretty much just explain, we take a deep dive into the most common questions that people have about nutrition for running, cycling and triathlon. Uh, and then we break those down and invite a, a guest expert in our A episode and then an athlete in our B episode to both give their perspectives on the, the particular question that we're asking. Uh, and so we're up to episode eight now, Steph, 8A mm -hmm. today. Uh, so it's our expert episode. And our topic today is do I need iron supplements? Another mm -hmm. really common question that we get mm -hmm. a lot from runner cyclists and triathletes. Yeah. Yep, yep. And um, who were we lucky enough to get for this one, Alan? Yes, uh, Associate Professor Peter Peeling, who is from both the University of Western Australia but also the Western Australian Institute of Sport, WACE, mm -hmm. over there in Perth. So uh, Pete's done a huge amount of research in this area of iron for specifically for athletes over the last probably decade or a little bit more now. Um, and so he's got a great insight into how the, the recommendations around iron supplementation have changed over the last sort of 10 or 15 years. Uh, and there has been some some changes in those sort of recommendations. So it's, it's probably a good time to kind of uh, re, you know, have a revisit of, of those sorts of issues and, and see where the, the science is at currently and then more you know, from a practical perspective, where does that leave us uh, if we uh, are trying to work out whether we need to supplement and also, you know, if we do, what's the best way to do that to get the iron back up and, and minimise any kind of side effects from, from iron supplementation. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah, looking forward to um, getting cracked into this one. Yep, absolutely. All right, so as we do with all of these uh, A expert podcast, Steph, we have a think about something that's on our mind and grating away at us, something that athletes will often think or say or we see on social media and we just kind of shake our heads and we go, don't get me started. Mm. Now, Steph, what's on your mind? You look, you're screwing <laughs> up your face there. I can see <laughs> the look on your face. You just, the blood pressure is up. It's up. What, what's going it's on? Up. Uh, well, don't get me started, Alan. Um, when we feel like we're tired, okay, often what I hear is like, oh, I'm tired. It must be because I'm low in iron. Um, so I'm just going to go to the chemist and grab an iron supplement and I'll take that and that will make me feel better. Um, and that's the reason why I'm tired. Um, or not even necessarily iron, it might be I'm tired, I'm gonna take a multivitamin. Um, and then also like another issue with that is then they might think, you know, well, more must be better. 
So I'll just take, you know, well, instead of one, why don't I take two? Um, and then maybe that'll get into my system quicker um, and that'll be better and I'll feel better quicker. Um, however, just because you are tired, there's a range of factors that could be contributing to that. Um, and so it's most beneficial to actually like go in further and investigate why is that an issue like is there an underlying medical condition like there's so many different reasons we could be on because of it could be medical in terms of even supplementation is it vitamin d is it iron you know a range of things is it b12 um, are you eating enough are you eating enough um are you, are you getting enough, enough sleep um so and then you know more and taking more i mean a prime example that we're having a little bit of a discussion about um is um iron if i if um people take um it a lot it can it's not necessarily good for the body it can be toxic and there's people that you know um have um hemochromatosis um and iron overload um, so we really need to be careful um, with how much we take and we, we should actually be, um, you know, doing that, um, I guess, under the guidance of, um, of supervision, medical supervision and um, having a proper protocol for that um, so we don't get ourselves into, into harm's way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good uh, message before we get into today's podcast around iron supplements is the fact that, um, you know, iron, because it can be toxic if you take too much or you take it when you don't need it as a supplement, uh, really, you don't want to take it unless you've had a blood test to confirm that actually you need the iron supplement. And it really should be done under medical supervision. This isn't something that, you know, just because you can go to chemist warehouse and buy as much iron as you want, doesn't necessarily mean that that's a good idea. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yep, cool. Uh, and I think that's an important one, particularly for this episode is that, you know, we're giving some information and, and Pete's going to talk about, you know, different supplementation strategies and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you really need to be doing this under medical supervision. You know, this is not a substitute for a doctor consult or, or yep. going and seeking your own medical advice. So yep. uh, definitely recommend you do that. But obviously this will hopefully highlight some of the issues you need to think about uh, mm -hmm. and some of the things hopefully your doctor's, you know, considering talk as well when about. you have that discussion with them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. Did that help? You feeling better? I'm feeling better. I feel yeah. much more free. I don't think I need to grab that um, bottle of beer anymore. Excellent. Well, that's pretty good because we're recording this at 2.30 in the afternoon. So <laughs> I'm glad you didn't need a beer. <laughs> Nothing wrong with afternoon. an Arvo drink if not I'm not Tuesday at work. Afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, Steph, it is episode 8A today of The Long Munch, and our topic is do I need iron supplements? So we've got uh, Associate Professor Peter Peeling joining us to discuss this topic. He is an Associate Professor at the University of Western Australia. He is also uh, the Head of Research at the Western Australian Institute of Sport. So he has both the, um, the theoretical sort of research side of things, but also the real practical applied, you know, he works with athletes in, in the field, uh, in the real world, um, as a physiologist. So he sort of has both both avenues covered, which is really good because he does that sort of research and particularly around iron in the last sort of 10 or 15 years. But then he has that, you know, how to apply that to to working with athletes, particularly at that elite level, which is, is fantastic to get both perspectives. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Looking forward yep. to this one, Alan. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that's probably all we need to do by by way of introduction. So I think we'll just jump straight into this episode and our interview with Pete Peeling. Awesome. Thanks, Pete, for joining us on the Long Munch podcast. Nice. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. And um, so our topic today is um, do I need iron supplements? Um, So just, I guess, the introduction bit is when when we actually did our sports nutrition training um, and for the first several years afterwards, there really didn't seem to be much new in terms of guidelines for um, for iron supplementation. There wasn't much in terms of, um, you know, explanations and research interest in iron and athletes, but probably in the last 10 years or so, this seems to have really picked up in, in momentum um, and we, we kind of know a lot more um, in the area of iron and iron supplements um, as a result. Um, so do you know if there was anything in particular that kind of led to this um, spark in interest over the past 10 years? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, think, um, I think there was a lot of really good work done in the 80s and 90s in the area. And, um, and then as a result of all that research that was done then, I think maybe we thought we had a, a bit of a handle on it um, and, and things kind of rolled on through the late 90s maybe with that information being used and and not looked at a whole lot because um, that that work was showing you know if you took an oral iron supplement if you're iron deficient you could improve your iron stores and and you could kind of get on with it Um, but and then in the early 2000s um, more in a a a, um, a chronic disease kind of setting, uh, a lot of new things started to be discovered and some of those were hormone responses and regulators of iron absorption and, and, and these new hormones that were, or this new hormone, so the hormone's name is hepcidin, mm. um, that, that has been found to be the master regulator of iron absorption was discovered in 2001, published in 2002 and then that kind of set a whole new kind of precedence of, of how to maybe look at this issue in sport which kind of maybe brought the topic back to, to being a little bit vogue again and then um, I guess we've tried to progress um, the, the knowledge around iron deficiency in athletes on the basis of new findings in other areas. So it's kind of, it's, it's maybe taken a little bit of a surge in terms of being looked at because some new things were found in other areas. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what sparked your own um, interest in this area? Was it, was it something personal or...? Yeah. Um, well, as we mentioned before we, we started, I, I'm a, I consider myself a hack runner. And um, back in, back a, a, I guess, 15 odd years ago, now I was probably running a little more than I am these days. And um, I had constant uh, issues with my iron, uh, mainly because I was a single male living by myself and <laughs> training a lot. And so I'd eat a lot of um, breakfast cereal for dinner and probably yeah. not really think about what I was eating because I didn't have anyone else to worry about. And uh, and my, my ferritin levels at one stage were six micrograms per yeah. liter, which um, we'll probably get into it soon, but sort of yeah. you, you kind of start to question if iron stores are somewhat compromised when they're hit around 30 and lower mm. being worse. So I was probably in an anemic state um, on and off. Uh, but but I kind of responded quite well to 
dietary changes so I could kind of eat a bit of meat and, um, you know, take an iron supplement and my iron stores would come back up. So it seemed to kind of work quite well for me. And and so just by nature of being interested in the area um, and having a personal kind of connection to it, it became something that I was interested to look at through some studies um, when I was an undergrad, PhD and that sort of thing. And and then um, I guess the, the, the area continued to interest me because we started to see a few things and, and it kind of became my, my focal point of, of what I do these days. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll certainly get into some of those, those things that you've done in, in your studies and, and I guess how that field has kind of moved forward in the last 10 or so years um, yeah. a little bit later on. Yeah. But if we come back and, and think about sort of the topic of iron deficiency first of all, and I mean, I think this is a, a topic that, you know, if, if you're a runner, a cyclist, a triathlete, I think people are very conscious of. It's, um, you know, of, of all sort of the nutrition-related issues, it's one that's kind of top of mind for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of athletes in, in those kind of sports, both recreational and elite, will often get their iron tested, you know, semi-regularly just as a, uh, I guess, a preventative measure or a matter of routine these days. Um but is iron deficiency actually more common in this kind of group of athletes compared to, say, the general population, or is it just kind of reflecting the general population? Ah, uh, it's a it's a good question. I think um, I think we tend to think of athlete cohorts as being like healthy, and so when some when an issue pops up, we're like, oh, that's abnormal, and is that abnormal to the the general population? Actually, iron deficiency is really common in the general population, but probably more so in developing countries. So if you look at like the, the more population-based literature, if you go and look at the numbers in more developing countries, you can see up to 50% of the population might be iron deficient. And in more Western, I guess, countries where our diet's probably quite um, uh, abundant and well-supplied, uh, the numbers aren't quite that high. But certainly the numbers in athletes aren't too dissimilar so if you if on a population basis you might expect you know um 20 to 30 percent of a population might be iron deficient similar with athletes so um female athletes we can see up to kind of 35 percent of um if you if you kind of look at the literature whole literature holistically 35 percent of a given female cohort might present as iron deficient but certainly if if um if you look at specific cohorts so we've done studies in say a, a soccer team a female soccer team, we noticed in that group that 50% of that population uh, were iron deficient. So certainly um, there seems to maybe be an increase in the athlete population compared to, say, a, a, a your general population within a, a developed country, um, but mm. but they're not too different. Um, yeah, but, but some of the mechanisms behind why the, that population might present as iron deficient um, probably lend themselves to explaining why you do see a slightly increased incidence in, in yep. certain cohorts. Yep, no, that makes sense. And I, th- I know certainly, I mean, as Steph mentioned before, you know, back when we did our training, um, there seemed to be a little bit of a, a lull in, in the research. And I guess at that time, and still I think a lot amongst a lot of um, sort of runners, cyclists, triathletes, there's a lot of stories about, you know, why people get iron deficiency and talks about, you know, the impact of running, destroying blood cells through your feet, um, all these sorts of things, and in increasing the amount of iron that people actually need, um, is that a is that a myth, or is there some truth to that? Yeah, the, uh, the, certainly it happens um, in the sense that uh, as red blood cells get older, they get more fragile, and the mechanics of say heel strike in running can um, 
increase the, the speed at which those older red blood cells are destroyed or lysed. And when that happens, the contents of that red blood cell gets kind of spilt out into the system. But the, uh, and, and part of that content is iron because iron's a major contributor to red blood cells, which is why we think it's so important to exercise because it actually carries the oxygen within the red blood cell. So hemolysis does happen, um, but the, the body cleans that up um, in a process where macrophages come in and clean up whatever's spilt out from the red blood cell and then effectively it can recycle the iron that it cleans up. Um, so we have a process to kind of deal with it. So although it happens and we do lose iron from red blood cells, the, the body is pretty good at kind of cleaning that up and recycling the iron. You still see hemolysis in um, in in weight-supported sport. So there's some, there's some work that shows it in swimming populations. So although uh, ground impact is one way we might um, rupture those older blood, red blood cells, the circulatory stress and muscle contraction against, um, say, venous return, for instance, from the legs, if we were swimming and kicking, that, that muscle contraction can also result in some hemolysis. So, so basically just squishing the, the veins, essentially, yeah. as the muscles contract, they squash the veins and that can do the same thing. Yeah, and specifically on the older red blood cells. Um, so, so there is a process for it to happen across multiple different sports, weight-supported or weight-bearing. Um, yeah. But like I said, I think it's part of a, a much larger picture and I don't think it would be the predominant way that we lose iron. Yeah. Okay. So is it um, not more common iron deficiency in runners compared to, let's say, cyclists or swimmers? No, it, it is. So, well, mm. sorry, um, it, it depends on where you look uh, mm. and, and what the cohort's like and obviously their diet. And so every cohort has their own challenges. Mm. Certainly I would say if you looked at a group of male cyclists, versus a group of male runners, you'd probably see a higher incidence of iron deficiency in the male running group. Um, most male cycling groups that I've seen as a population generally have pretty good iron stores. Um, so so you, would, you would probably suggest that the, the running group um, seem to be, you know, a little bit more at risk, but certainly it really does depend. And this is probably the whole thing with lots of lots of the things that we look at, not just iron, but an individual approach to assessing and looking at ind individuals and what's contributing to their, if they're iron deficient, what's contributing to that is probably the best way to look at it and, mm. and taking the individual approach rather than cohort studies show this um, Maybe it's more about the contributing factors for that's that given athlete around their diet um, and other factors. Yeah. Okay. And so you've obviously, as you mentioned before, um, done quite a bit of research in this area. And you know, after this discovery of hepcid and the hormone you mentioned before as sort of being that regulator of of iron absorption. And it sounds like from what you're saying here that and or something else is is more of the the major component for athletes that might contribute to iron deficiency yeah i think um so the, the hormone's really interesting so it was discovered by um well the author of the first paper's surname was park um in 2001 but there's a group at ucla um thomas gantz and elizabeth nemeth and, and they work in um iron regulation in unhealthy populations and um, the so there's a lot of inflammatory disorders in sick people that result in anemia, and then we all know of of or we probably know of the condition hemochromatosis where uh, individuals absorb or store too much iron. So iron's toxic, 
um, if we have too much of it. So uh, probably a good point to raise is um, that there is too much of a good thing and, and athletes looking to improve their iron stores only really need to do so if they have compromised iron stores because too much iron isn't, isn't a good thing. These groups found that um, people with hemochromatosis don't actually produce the hormone and so there's this overabsorption of iron from the diet diet and they start to store that iron in different organs to to be able to you know have it in the system so so the hormone was discovered and in a chronic disease sense and these guys were all looking at at ways to kind of try and assist um helping uh cure (laughs) disease states and um and the good old kind of sports science uh, sports nutrition researchers come and read all their great work um, where they've done all this awesome stuff to find these new hormones and go oh, how would that apply to my situation and that's where our our research kind of started was kind of reading some of their work and going well a lot of these disease states actually produce similar acute kind of responses in exercise and the beauty of exercise is that acute transient change in these things calms down and ultimately, you hope you build up to a better state that you're a healthier individual as a result. But there's that transient point after exercise where some of those inflammatory responses are similar to disease states. So we started to look at the hormone profile, and, and certainly we found that uh, after exercise, there's this transient increase in inflammatory markers, and the inflammatory markers in the disease states are what was signaling the liver to produce this hormone hepcidin. And similarly, we saw the same thing after exercise. And, and we know that that hepcidin is the master regulator of iron. So if we have high levels of hepcidin, we reduce our absorption because it's kind of homeostatic. The body's going, oh, there's a, we, we've got some inflammation. If we're sick, we don't want to be feeding whatever it is with, with iron and making it stronger. So we, we'll, we'll produce this hormone and we'll calm down our ability to absorb iron and hopefully the inflammation goes away and we'll, we'll get better. Well, similarly with the transient increase after exercise, the hormone does the same thing. So there's so we started to look at whether there was um, some periods around exercise where there's a reduction in iron absorption and that's where our work's kind of headed is, um, is there a better time or a better strategy um, to try and consume iron at points when you're going to absorb it better than um when we've got an elevation in this hormone. Yep, cool, yep. And we'll come back, I think, to that topic a little bit later on when we talk about, you know, iron supplements and, and how best to use them yeah. um, as well. But before we get to that point, I guess we need to answer the question of do we need iron supplements in the first place? Because as you said, you know, you can have uh, too much of a good thing and uh, if you're taking iron supplements when you don't need iron supplements, you can um, run into trouble that way as well. Yeah. So I guess if someone suspects that maybe there's an issue there, or their doctor recommends they get a blood test and, and look at their iron. Um, so they go and get this test, they get the results back, but it's not a single test. They're getting all these different results back on their their report with all sorts of different values going on. And it can be pretty confusing for people to try and work out what's going on here and what's important and, and what doesn't matter. You've got the actual iron level, the serum iron um, level, um, but that's not necessarily going to tell you um, about deficiency or, or not. So can you just explain why there are so many different parts to these tests um, and, and why it's important to test all these different things? Yeah, um, yeah. so when, when, I mean, when you go to the doc, you might, you might go because you're feeling flat, fatigued, lethargic, and there's not really an explanation for why. So, so the doctor might say, oh, well, let's check your iron levels, especially if you're active, just to see if there's anything there. And it might be a, something that we can fix. So you'll go and you'll go to the 
pathology center and you'll you get a blood cell, uh, test and generally they ask for what's called iron studies and within the iron studies a, a number of uh, measures will come back so you'll probably see on the form ferritin transferrin iron transferrin saturation and hemoglobin so they're probably the key five things that you would see on a form you're like whoa what am i looking at here why are they testing all these things and the reason why they're all on there is because under different states of of an issue some things will be up and, and some things will be down but um i think maybe so there's some controversy around what measures are actually useful um and some doctors you know would want it all and others were really fixated on just a couple of things and i think um for the most part most doctors and and it, and sorry i will say in a in an institute setting you may have a more regular screening just to make sure people are okay um, in general, so it's just a more preventative screening, um, which might be annual. And so when you get to that sort of point or when the doctor's looking, they'll generally look at maybe three things. So they'll look at the ferritin, which is the, the storage iron, so making sure you've got a, a pool of iron that you can tap into when you need it to either replenish what's been lost from exercise or to adapt to the exercise. So there's two stresses there, right? One's where we're adapting because we're doing training to try and improve uh, our system and therefore the adaptation requires some iron or there's the iron potential for iron loss from exercise which we need to replace so we've got to have a storage pool there to make sure we can tap into it when we need it so the ferritin is the storage pool and that's one thing that the doctor would look at the other thing is the uh, the saturation of transferrin so transferrin is i guess the transporter of iron so if we wanted to take iron from our storage pool to the bone marrow um, to be used um, we would transport it there in transferrin. So we look at how saturated that is. And if we're iron deficient, obviously the saturation of transferrin would be low because there's not enough iron in the system to move it around. So that's one the, the second marker. And then the third key marker that we'd look at would be the hemoglobin levels. And, and obviously iron is the part of the hemoglobin that carries oxygen around the body. And so if we have low hemoglobin levels, then that's a sign that we don't have enough iron to build more hemoglobin. So um, certainly they're the three things that the doctor would look for. Yep. Okay. And, and I guess some people would be aware that ferritin is often the value that gets sort of focused on or the one that people tend to, to hone in. And you mentioned, you know, some doctors tend to look at, at more of those pieces of the puzzle than, than others. Yeah. Um, but when we're interpreting ferritin, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, 30 is often sort of a cutoff that people use to say, oh, you know, uh, iron stores are getting a bit low if it sort of drops below 30. But there's some other things we need to be careful about when we look at a ferritin value that might make it a bit higher than than what it probably reflects reality. Yeah. So um, so ferritin is is it, it's kind of an acute phase reactant. So if we had an inflammatory insult, for lack of a better word, um, one of the so a number of uh, hormones and um, peptides in the body would would increase. So we we might have heard of the word cytokines. So a number of cytokines, inflammatory cytokines, would elevate in response to the inflammation, which signal a whole number of things to happen to try and control that inflammatory process. Uh, so one of those uh, signals and one, one of the things that our body will elevate in an inflammatory state is serum ferritin. And so that's quite interesting is that if we exercise, we might see a slight elevation in our um, ferritin levels. 
which may just be a result of the transient inflammatory response from the training session we did just did. So what's really important with that is um, when we have our blood test and, you know, GPs might not be super aware of this, but certainly hopefully if you're working with a sports doctor, they would be that if we're given a form to go and get a blood test, the best way that we could get data that's useful is to go and do that blood test in a rested state in the morning, well hydrated, probably 24, at least 12 hours since our last training session. So preferably you train in the afternoon, you'd sleep that night, you'd wake up the next day and you'd hydrate and then go and get your blood taken because you get a more accurate picture of, of what's actually happening. Whereas if you if you train in the morning, go, I'll just get there whenever I can and you head in at lunchtime, then you're going to get some diurnal changes plus the inflammatory change in these markers that we look at, which yep. may reflect a better iron status than you actually have. So yep. it's really important to keep that in mind, um, that there are some factors that do influence these markers. Yep. The problem is we don't really have better markers. So there's always a lot of talk of, is it the best marker for us to look at? It's pretty reliable that if you've got low ferritin, um, that you potentially need to um, improve your iron stores or your iron intake. Um, but certainly there are some caveats around how it can change. Yep. Okay. And does illness or injury impact on that as well in terms of that inflammatory response? Yeah, it does. So um, so some doctors, and um, probably more so the sports doctors, will ask for an inflammatory marker as part of the blood panel. A uh, common one is C-reactive protein. And if there's an increase in C-reactive protein, you probably know to take the ferritin value with a pinch of salt because if there's inflammation or underlying infection around you're going to have elevated levels and and the marker may not be super accurate yeah okay that makes sense all right um we talked a little bit before about the fact that you don't want to supplement with iron if you're not actually iron deficient because there's a, a toxicity factor to iron what actually happens if you do take too much iron what are the sort of things that you might experience? Uh, I think the, um, the overload of iron, um, it, it would, it's pretty hard to do, but certainly um, uh, if you over-consume iron tablets, uh, iron supplements, for instance, you, you, could, you could put yourself in a pretty bad situation um, if you took them all at once, for instance. Uh, but certainly if you weren't needing to supplement with iron and you were taking a couple of iron supplements a day, um, which, you know, for an iron deficient person, two iron tablets a day isn't uncommon. But certainly if you had really healthy iron stores and you were doing that unnecessarily or if you had an iron infusion, you're going to boost your iron stores um, quite quickly and, and probably to an unnecessary level. So the body needs to store that iron somewhere. And so it starts to store it in organs and, and it's not really healthy for the organ to have a, a large iron store in it. So it starts to become a, a negative um, impact on on different organs and tissues of the body. So we don't we don't want to overconsume because um, iron is is toxic in that sense. That's why when when we consume iron, um, we bring it we get it across um, the gut. We automatically transfer it and store it in the ferritin form because that it kind of reduces it to a form where it's not so toxic. But certainly free iron. Um, unstored as ferritin becomes toxic in a sense. So we, don't, we certainly don't want to overconsume. And, and keep in mind that ferritin is a store, so it's a pool that we tap into. So we want to have a good store there for adaptation and replacing loss. But certainly it's just a, it's a pool of storage iron that's literally it's not doing anything until it's tapped into, right? So having it there 
and given it's toxic and it's, it's just being sitting there as a storage pool, having too much of that is, is not a good thing. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. So with iron supplements and, and infusion, so um, let's say we get our test results back um, from the doctor, how do you decide if you need supplementation? Yeah, um, so we we have a bit of a, um, a a process, I guess, or some phases of iron deficiency, and we we would treat those phases in a different way. So the the first phase or the phase one, we call it iron depletion. So it's not really a deficiency, and, and we we tend to look at that when an athlete presents with ferritin stores of thirty. 35 micrograms per litre. So the, the Australian College of Pathologists say that below 30 micrograms per litre is kind of your cutoff for iron deficiency. That's where it starts. So we kind of look, well, athletes have this increased need for iron. So the average person will lose one to two milligrams per day. An athlete will lose three to four milligrams per day. So there's definitely an increased need. So we want to make sure there's a good storage pool. So a lot of the work we've done and, and others, although this varies, but we look at our iron depletion, so stage one, as a ferritin of 35 micrograms per litre. But transferrin's okay and hemoglobin's okay. And all that really is for us is, hey, it's a little flag. Um, this athlete might want to just keep an eye on them. Uh, if they're feeling fatigued, um, then, you know, this could be a reason. And let's take a food-first approach, see if we can increase uh, the iron in their diet and, and see if we can encourage some absorption from that. So, so that's kind of our first phase. And the reason to act in the first phase is really to prevent someone from going through to the, the last phase, right? So we want to kind of mitigate any potential risk to progress. Um, so it's not that performance is impacted in stage one, but it's really just a, a flag just to keep an eye on it. So then in stage two, or what we call stage two, we then kind of have a range of ferritin where we say, okay, so between 20 and 35 micrograms per litre, we call that um, stage two of iron deficiency. And now we're seeing a bit of an impact on saturation because there's not as much iron around but hemoglobin's still okay so again maybe performance isn't impacted here because hemoglobin's still okay but certainly we're progressing towards an anemic state so it's at that phase you might then say well okay what's our next option above and beyond food first choices and that would be an oral iron supplement and so the beauty of oral iron supplements is that they're really effective um in the sense that they improve iron stores in a range of if you look the literature holistically 40 to 80% improvement in iron stores, so ferritin, over about an eight-week period. So that's good, but it's only going to take your iron stores from, say, 20 to 35 or, you know, 40. So you're still going to be kind of watching um, the person. Mm. And it takes a long time. It takes eight weeks for that to happen. Mm. So, but, but that's okay. If we can improve stage two and move them back towards stage three or beyond, then we'd, we'd, we're at least dealing with the issue and we haven't impacted performance. It's the next phase, so phase three, where things become a bit more serious and the literature then shows if we get into phase three, so we're talking a ferritin less than 20 micrograms per litre, transferrin saturation is impacted, but now hemoglobin is also impacted. So we've got a, a lower level of hemoglobin in the body, so we don't have as much oxygen going around the body. That's the phase where the literature shows performance starts to be impacted, and that's where we probably need to take a more drastic kind of approach to fixing the problem and that's where the decision would be made by the sports physician. 
um, as to whether an iron infusion is appropriate for that person or not. And the, the beauty of an iron infusion is it bypasses the gut. So the gut's really the issue. If we eat iron, we can only absorb so much of it. We're not super efficient at absorbing iron, but if we put it straight into the blood, well, it's in the system. So it's really fast and the magnitude of change is really good from an infusion, but it's whether it's right for the individual, which is the doctor's goal. But, but that's how we have kind of come to formulate the phases of iron deficiency and probably the approach that you might take to try and fix the problem. And in stage three, um, where it's mainly the, the ferritin that's, you know, starting to get low, um, do you hear of athletes actually saying in that stage that they do feel, you know, fatigued? In the, in the iron deplete stage, yeah, it's it's quite individual. Um, yep. Some athletes can function perfectly fine in stage one and two. Um, yeah. You see, you see, like it's it's not uncommon to see a female athlete uh, who functions perfectly well with good hemoglobin levels, but ferritin at 20, 25 micrograms per liter. And, and if that's the case, that's that's where I think we mentioned at the start, taking an individual approach mm. rather than these kind of population case studies, uh, you know, population studies, sorry, that go globally, this is the problem. Um, yeah. Some people can just tolerate with that, that kind of level of store. And keep in mind, there's still a storage pool there. It's just yep. not as big as someone else's, but their hemoglobin isn't impacted. So they might... They might be okay and not have any um, symptoms with that, mm. but, but quite similarly, someone could be at 20 um, hemoglobin okay but feeling flat and you give them a, an iron supplement and they, they start to bep up a bit. So it, it really comes down to the individual. I would say, though, it's that, it's that last stage where performance it begins to become impacted. And there's some really cool case studies where if you fix an anemic state, you'll actually see improvements in time trial performance. Um, yeah. about kind of, you know, 30, 60 days after you fixed it. And you, you actually see the correction of hemoglobin uh, and specifically hemoglobin mass. So, you know, even a plasma volume independent measure, um, mm. the, the supplementation effectively fixes those problems. Yes. Um, and so there's all sorts of uh, iron tablets, as you know, on the market um, and ferrogradumate sulfate is probably the most commonly used in Australia um, but there's certainly others. Um, does the actual type of iron tablets um, matter for the athlete or for yeah. the individual? There, there is some studies that look at ferrous sulfate versus ferrous fumarate and, and the like and, and the most the most uh, the, the, the concoction uh, that comes yep. out generally mm -hmm. on top is ferrous sulfate as being the most um, efficacious if you like for, for mm -hmm. outcome so that's why that seems to be the the um, iron of choice but certainly there's some um, even within that there, there's some different ways of putting this ferrous sulfate together so uh, you, you mentioned ferrograduant um, if you can get that with a mixed source of vitamin C and we know that vitamin C helps with the absorption of iron at a gut level so so you can mix these tablets with vitamin C which is probably better than just taking the iron by itself but similarly some of the more recent um, tablets so there's one called maltotha which is iron mixed with a maltodextrin which um, and they're enteric coated so they seem to be better tolerated by the gut so one of the issues with uh, oral iron supplements is lots of athletes complain of GI distress 
And so choosing these more um, recent formulas with enteric coding and multidextrin mix with them seems to enhance their ability to be tolerated. It doesn't necessarily change uh, the effect of them. So still talking about the same magnitude of change, but certainly the tolerability of, of them can increase if you look at what the tablet is kind of made with. And would, yeah, would you have to increase, because is there then a difference in dosage? Uh, dosage is an interesting one. Um, so, for instance, so uh, a ferrogradument C tablet, it, it has 325 milligrams of iron, but only 100 milligrams of elemental iron, and the elemental iron yep. is the bit that we're interested in. So you should kind of read that and uh, on the packet. But generally we recommend for most people um, in a stage one or two kind of state that are taking a iron supplement that 100 milligrams a day should be okay to to see some changes that 40 to 80 percent change over eight weeks is generally on 100 milligrams elemental iron ferrous sulfate that day um, certainly if you're lower than that you could you can recommend up to 200 milligrams or going to altitude um, there's some recommendations of 200 milligrams because you, you're trying to prepare the body to uh, have a storage pool to adapt to the environment which i think we'll touch on soon um, so 200 milligrams isn't um, obscenely high especially if you're low um, but there's some there's some work out there that shows the relative absorption from a lower dose is actually better than a higher dose. So although, let me caveat this, more is more, you'll absorb more from more. The relative absorption from a lower dose is actually better than a higher dose. So if you have gut issues and you're not tolerating an iron tablet, you could drop the load to, you could drop the dose to 60 milligrams and still have a, a decent outcome. Or some of the work that we've recently done looked at um, splitting the schedule and supplementing on every other day. And what we showed from every other day supplementation was a similar response in ferritin stores over eight weeks, albeit slightly smaller. It wasn't statistically smaller. Mm -hmm. um, so in, the, in that instance, you would, you would agree that more is more. But the uh, GI tolerance of the group that supplemented every other day was, was um, markedly improved to the group and in, that supplemented daily. And if you look at the total load of iron consumed, it was 50%, which means your bill is 50% cheaper. So mm. there's, there's lots of positives from an alternate day strategy. Yeah. Mm. And so um, with the, the Maltofa you mentioned before, so if you have 100 milligrams of elemental iron from that versus 100 milligrams of elemental iron from uh, ferrous sulfate, should you get would you expect to see sort of an equivalent response or pretty close to it or do you need to adjust the dose depending on the, the form that it's in? Yeah, my uh, my understanding of Maltose, so I, I haven't actually seen any literature, so I'll, I'll, I'll go off cuff and take that with a pinch of salt. But um, mm -hmm. certainly my understanding is the outcome should be expected as pretty similar, but the tolerance mm -hmm. to the supplement should be better because of the yeah. the multidextrin helps with the, the gut issues and, and similar with lots of other supplements so if you think it's a lot of work in um, sodium phosphate for instance which the you know is effectively floor cleaner so i'm not sure why anyone thought it was a good supplement for sport but um but it, it so it makes you feel sick obviously um but if you mix that with the carbohydrate source it seems to quell um the the issues with it with the gut stress so certainly i think that's probably the benefit of those of those tablets yeah so sometimes someone's iron's really low or let's say they're an athlete and they want to get 
their levels back to normal in a hurry because they could be going to altitude or they've got an upcoming competition. Um, doctors might then perhaps suggest an iron injection or an iron infusion. Um, what's the actual difference between an injection and an infusion? Um, and what are, I guess, the downsides as well of, of doing these methods compared to, say, taking oral um, tablets? Yeah, so um, the injection, the injections are probably less common now um, yep. than they were maybe five or so years ago, but the injections are direct into the muscle. Uh, and sometimes they're a repeated course, so you might have a couple of injections over a, a number of days, uh, whereas an infusion uh, is into the into the vein and uh, it goes in with a, a bag of saline. So the difference is really just where it's delivered. Um, uh, the the negatives of the of the injections are that they're straight into the muscle, so they're pretty mm. painful or relatively. But the infusion is just like getting a bag of saline basically. The, the benefit of them is both of them bypass the gut, like we mentioned before, which is where the real issue is in, in absorption. So in that case, everything you're putting in goes in. Mm. Um, so the beauty of that is it's rapid and the magnitude is really, really uh, large comparatively. I, I will say that we, we just did a um, a study at WACE, um, one, of our, one of our former students, so you might have... Um, heard of Alana McKay she's yep. now at um, ACU with Louise as a postdoc um, Alana was just a, a publishing machine so we used to just feed her data and mm -hmm. see what she'd spit out which is which was <laughs> awesome but now she's over at ACU so we can't do that anymore <laughs> um, but she took all of the infusion data that we had at WACE and she plotted kind of the initial response and then she with because if someone at WACE had an infusion they'd obviously have a follow-up process in the in the years yep. following to make sure you know that that would be our um, a case where it's someone we want to keep an eye on because they've they've been in a position to have an infusion so she measured kind of the immediate response and then the decay rate over time um, of these of these athletes so 22 of them um, from from the organization that we could track reliably over time and what her kind of modeling showed was that the, the individual response was quite wild um, to an infusion some people go off the charts and others would kind of just come up around the 100 and you're like geez i just put everything in there and it didn't necessarily um, do what, what i was thinking but certainly you still get a good response but the interesting bit with that was that that as, as much as the individual response was quite variable, so was the rate at which people held on to that iron. Um, and the, the worst-case scenario, someone had gone back to um, what we, we would consider iron deplete, so not deficient but iron deplete, within about 200, 250 days. So we're not even talking a year, talking kind of nine months, they were back to where they were. And in the best case, um, someone uh, was out to kind of three years before they were back to to where they were. So I guess the key point that we probably keep coming back to is, is that you got to know your athletes really. Um, and, and so from that work, um, Alana's recommendation was to um, test at one and six months post infusion to check the efficacy. And from her kind of modeling at those two time points, you can pretty much have a, a, a fairly good guess at where it's going to end up um, back at, at kind of those levels where you want to be treating again. Um, but the, the take-home is that it's really individual. The, the negatives are um, there's there's been some um, instances of anaphylactic reactions to these um, parenteral approaches. And, and, again, that's an individual 
response. If you look at the cohort studies, they kind of show that, you know, not the rate of anaphylaxis because that doesn't necessarily mean you die, but certainly there's one death in every five million um, instances that it's being used. So it's really low chance that something like that would happen. But I read a book the other day that said when you put the death in statistics like that, kind of um, kind of washes out the meaning of the death. It's still one person every five million that, that kind mm. of died from that, right, which is terrible. So there's that to consider. But most of the setups these days, um, the infusions are getting better and the mm. clinics that do them are really well set up for if there is an anaphylactic reaction or um, that sort of thing. The other negatives are you can get some staining around the vein from the iron, um, which is generally temporary and goes away. Um, and, of course, if you don't need it, so, you know, if you thought, okay, you're in a high-performance setting and, and maybe you're cycling in a team, for instance, and they think, oh, iron's the be-all, end-all, let's all get infusions. Like you're just going to elevate your iron stores massively for no reason and put yourself in a bad situation. So certainly I would be saying the decision to do this is a doctor's decision and the decision to do it should be based on that stage three anemic kind of um, level. And if you look at the literature, sorry, I know I'm talking so much, but if you look at the literature, um, all of the studies that have looked at this in athletes, if the athletes are iron deficient, non-anemic, you can improve their iron stores, but it does nothing for their performance. The only research that shows this is beneficial on performance is when you need to correct an athlete who is iron deficient, but anemic and their hemoglobin has taken a hit. So that's something to consider as well. And I guess you, you've kind of answered this already, but um, so say um, they've they've had an infusion um, or an injection, um, should they continue to take, let's say, tablets as a preventative measure? Yeah. Um, or yeah. Uh, they, they can. I think. I think a lot of that will come back to the the recommendation of the doctor. So there's some of the. So Laura Garvican, you may know Laura. Um, she did a cool case study with a runner where they gave the runner an iron injection and then tablets after that. Two two tablets actually, two hundred milligrams a day for the yeah. the following period. I'm not sure what the period was, but uh, the the data is really cool. You see this like increase in in ferritin and hemoglobin mass goes up and and it's cool and it was a it was a combined approach, exactly like you said, um, with an injection, not an infusion, an injection, and then um, then hitting with tablets. Generally, I would suggest that um, if you had the infusion, you'd back off the tablets and you would do the kind of one-month, um, six-month kind of check and then yep. see where you're at from there because the, the, the increase is it's rapid and the magnitude is large that you shouldn't need those tablets immediately after the, the infusion you might sorry you yeah. may be able to slow the decay but certainly i don't have any data that shows that yeah and you would get it um your blood's checked in four weeks so that's sort of enough time to check yeah yeah changes. that'll give you a good idea of the immediate effect yeah uh -huh. yeah and then once some, you've had some, that sorry some yeah. clinics will will send you for a check after two but from yep. the modeling that okay. we did, we, our modeling shows that four weeks and six months is a good, good two good time points to be able to predict kind of outcome. But some okay. clinics will send you um, sooner than that just to check. Yeah, yep. So you wouldn't have, um, there wouldn't be much point in, let's say you have it at four weeks to then get it checked in three months' time? Uh, that, that becomes a kind of cost-benefit 
uh, yep. question. And, you know, a lot of these things are on the public health system. So there's that question. Yes. Um, and similarly, if you can get enough info from the, the month and then the six months, then that's probably okay. Um, but again, it, it would definitely come back to the doctor and, and yep. how they saw the best course of treatment and then follow up to make that decision. And, and every yep. setting might be slightly different. Different, yeah. Cool. All right, well, let's talk about some of your own research now, Pete. And you've, you've talked a little bit about it in, in bits and pieces already. Um, you've done a lot of sort of work around hepcidin and, and athletes and the response to exercise and so forth. Do you want to just briefly summarise, I guess, from all of that research that you've done, sort of where we're at now in terms of hepcidin, exercise, supplementation and and what comes out of that? Because I think over the last 10 years or so, I think there was a, there was a time where people said, you know, don't take your iron supplement straight after exercise because of the hepcidin response, take it at the end of the day. And, and now the recommendation seems to swap back to taking it at the start of the day. So can you just explain what's going on there? Yeah. So, um, we, I mean, we, our early studies showed, it was just trying to mimic what the chronic disease state studies had done, looking at it in an exercise sense that if you exercise, you get the transient inflammatory increase. And then in the three hour post exercise period through to six hours. So that three hour window, you get this increase increase in hepcidin levels, which would basically suggest that if you were eating your high iron containing meals in that three, to, well, if you're absorbing the iron from those meals in that three to six hour period, so you might have consumed it a couple of hours after exercise, that your ability to absorb the iron from that food would likely be reduced because of the increase in the hormone. So we were we were suggesting at the time just to eat your high iron containing meals as far away from exercise as you can. That might be in the evening if you're a morning exerciser, it might be in the morning if you're an evening exerciser, and if you train twice a day, then you're probably too fit anyway. So, um, but when when do you fit it in? But that does bring up the the question of um, periodized iron, right? So do you do you take a greater iron load in the in your meals on days off, sort of thing? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where where our head was at. But we we've never really been able to to follow that up because mainly because of the money. Um, but uh, we came into um, fortune, I guess, for not not a fortune, but we were fortunate to get a small grant um, that allowed us to link up with the group in Switzerland and, and measure some of this stuff in isotopic traces. And so Rachel McCormick was a student of ours who um, she ran a study where she had uh, athletes come into the lab and exercise in the morning or they exercised in the afternoon and we put an isotopic tracer in their breakfast meal and in their evening meal on both instances. So there was two tracers per day and they either exercised at either end of the day. And from her data, what she saw was that so, so the, the meal was given to the athletes at 30 minutes post-exercise. So that's probably one thing that we'll come back to. But her data showed that the best absorption rates occurred in the 30-minute post-exercise period in the morning um, as compared to a rest and similarly as compared to afternoon um, iron absorption as well. And we didn't see the same response in the afternoon absorption um, if they ran in the afternoon. So we're, in trying to think that through, our thought was that the absorption in the, the, absorption in the post-exercise period was close enough to exercise that we haven't got these increases in hepcidin yet. So, so we're, we're not really impacted by that. So why does the absorption go up? It might be that kind of that open window theory of, um, well, we've exercised, the body's now craving nutrients, so the absorption rate might have been in 
improved. So, yeah, well, why didn't that happen in the afternoon? Mm. Well, we know that hepcidin has a diurnal uh, increase. So we know hepcidin levels are generally higher in the afternoon than they are in the morning. So it's potential that um, on the basis of that uh, diurnal effect, maybe the afternoon window doesn't really exist in the same way. Um, so that kind of that leads to a number of problems rather than answers because then you go, well, what happens if you had the iron before exercise and then you exercise and the windows they'd like, do you absorb it um, better as a result of doing the exercise or is that post-exercise window the perfect point? Um, and, and so it opens up a number of questions. And, and similarly, is, is 30 minutes post-exercise different to when the, the levels peak? What if we did feed them at two hours? Could we, could we show that that was actually the case? So, um, Alana McKay is, is um, trying to get some funding at the moment to explore that window a little bit more. Um, but on the basis of a greater absorption from isotopic traces immediately post-exercise and the known diurnal effect, our current thinking is it's either best to consume your iron in the morning on the basis of the um, diurnal impact or as close to exercise finishing as possible to maximize your chance of absorbing iron. So that's kind of where we've landed in the interim before we can explore that a little bit more. Yeah. And so in the morning, you know, probably doesn't matter too much at this stage, whether it's before you go for your exercise or straight away when you come back. Yeah, we, we, we can't we can't definitively answer that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. No drama. And I guess I mean that's the the beauty of monitoring, isn't it? To you know, you take your iron supplement whenever you're taking it and then you get your blood tests to follow up and see what's going on. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, that's that's kind of where we've landed um, in that sense. And then the other side to our work. So um, I'd like to look at it as two things. One 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 area that we're kind of keen on is we know the the kind of kinetics, if you like, of the timing of the hormone. So we're looking at ways how do we kind of beat the clock, if you like, when's best to consume it. And the other the other side of our our research, particularly, is we've been uh, looking at what are the contributing factors to the increase in, in hepcidin. So we did a lot of work where we kind of measured all these things. Is it the inflammation? Is it the iron stores? Is it the hypoxia? And, and when we loaded some of these things into like a multiple regression, it kind of came out that the the seven, we could explain nearly 80% of the variance or the change in hepcidin from IL-6, the baseline serum ferritin levels, and the duration of exercise. And so um, we started to play around with, okay, so how can we manipulate that? And one of the things we know, so if we know IL-6 is a driver of hepcidin, so more IL-6, more hepcidin, we started to go, okay, well, how can we, how can we manipulate the IL-6 response to exercise? And the main way we found that we can do it at the moment is um, by looking at glycogen deplete versus um, glycogen full if you like, um, muscle. And so we, we did a study where we showed that the, the um, IL-6 response and subsequent hepcidin response were larger if a person went into a second session, so that could be on the same day or overnight, so afternoon to morning. If they went into that session glycogen depleted, um, the, the levels of inflammation and hepcidin were were increased. So it makes an argument for making sure you recover well between sessions mm. to try and minimise the effect on um, your iron absorption. Mm. You've got to love biology, don't you? Yeah. Just when you think you've got it twigged, yeah. it takes you down all these different rabbit holes and around you go again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and then the, the alternate day, um, what, what's the rationale behind that? 
in terms of like why absorption would be better if you take it every second day rather than every day? Yeah, so um, so one of the drivers of the hepcidin response is actually the the iron levels. So if, if I gave you a really big iron bolus, um, your, your body would start to produce some hepcidin. So the, the more you take in from an iron supplement, for instance, like if I, if I gave you 200 milligrams versus 60 milligrams, you're, you're going to produce a bit more hepcidin from the 200 than you are from the 60. And so really the theory is that um, if you spread them out, you give your body more of a chance to recover from the bolus you just gave it. Yep. And like I said, uh, uh, in an absolute sense, more is more. So you'll get more from, um, from 200 milligrams, but certainly the relative amount from 60 is greater than 200. And if you don't tolerate the iron well, then the relative outcome plus no GI disturbance is a pretty good way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's, I guess, part of that kind of body's normal response is if you you know, the body thinks it's coming into this environment where there's a, a big ton of iron coming in, it's going to slow down the absorption of that for a period of time until it goes, oh, hang on, no, that's gone away. So that kind of makes sense when you think about it that way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So um, just if, I guess, um, in a nutshell, if you've got an athlete that's preparing to train at altitude, um, what should they think about and consider in relation to their iron status and getting the most out of altitude. So I guess when should they have it checked and then what should they consider when they're over at altitude? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting one. And Laura, Laura Garbikin and um, Philo Saunders, Chris Gore, those guys have done a lot of work in, in this area and, and then overseas Trent Stellingworth has a real interest in this too. So um, there's a lot of other people that can provide commentary for you here but... Um, I've been involved in a lot of stuff with them, so that's kind of cool for, for me. But um, a lot of the work kind of thinks about, well, we need to prepare the iron, uh, the iron status of the individual so that when they go, um, they've got a good reservoir, if you like, of iron to be able to adapt uh, to the environment. So um, if you test the athlete just before they go, it's almost too late to do anything mm. about it. So a good strategy is probably if you know your camps, altitude camps don't just happen, right? There's, there's a lot of um, a lot of planning. So you, you do have a number of weeks before you go when you know you're going, at least in most instances. Um, so if if we know that it takes us kind of six to eight weeks to improve iron stores, probably good to have a, a blood screening um, about that duration out from the start of the camp so that you know if you are anemic at least that you can do something about it before heading away um, mm. if you're iron deficient sorry if you're iron deplete so you've got low iron levels and you went on the camp anyway if you supplement while you're on the camp you can still actually um, provide enough iron to adapt to the stress so i think it's more of your if you're anemic you certainly would want to do something about it if you're iron deplete it's probably not harmful just to try and make sure that for that six weeks you kind of supplement going in. But certainly if you don't quite hit the numbers before you're going in, as long as you supplement whilst you're at altitude, uh, you can still adapt to that environment pretty well. And so if you're at that, if you're at altitude and your iron stores going in weren't necessarily great, you can supplement up to 200 milligrams a day, provided that you tolerate that from a gut perspective. And your outcome at the end will, will uh, well, depending on the individual response, but would still be what you would expect um, in terms of the hemoglobin mass adaptation to the environmental stress. So it's probably a case of uh, if you know it before you go and you can do something in the in the weeks leading up to 
optimize it, that's great. If you don't quite get there, don't panic, but make sure there's a process that you can supplement whilst you're at altitude to provide the iron that's needed for the adaptation. Yeah, and even if you're going in and your iron is fine, your iron status is fine prior to going at altitude, should you still supplement while you're over there? Yeah, so if your iron is fine, you could consider that, okay, there's going to be a greater iron need, so where am I going to get it from? So your Mm. first call might be let's optimise diet while we're there so that we can uh, ensure that the right amount of iron for the increased demand is going to be in what we're eating. Or you might go, well, let's not, let, you know, our, our diet's pretty good, but let's just mm-hmm. give it that um, little bit extra. And you might consider a low-dose um, iron tablet whilst you're there. But certainly that that would come down to a decision. If, if you're going in and your iron levels are 150, 200, you're, probably, you're going to be mm-hmm. fine. So mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't even mm-hmm. need to worry about it. It's, yep. it's probably more if you're under the 100 kind of mark yep. than there might be a case to be made to either manipulate diet or add a, a low-dose supplement um, to make sure that the, the requirement is there to service the need for adaptation. Yeah. But again, I mean, that's awesome. the important part there is um, more isn't better. So, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're above 100, 120, it shouldn't even be a consideration. Yeah. Okay. All right, Steph, I'll let you finish off with the bonus round. Cool. So just five questions, fun questions, so people can get to know you a bit more. Um, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, and it sounds like you really love what you're doing, um, what would it be? Uh, I looked at these and I'm like, man, am I boring? I'd, I'd probably, <laughs> um, I don't know, I, maybe I'd go back in time and be a student again because uh, those days were awesome fun. So I'm going to go with that. Um, I'd go yeah. back. I'd go back. I, I wouldn't just go and be a student again as an old person. I'd go back in time and be young and be a student again. <laughs> how's, uh, that? how's that? That sounds good. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, one thing on your bucket list you haven't yet done. Uh, oh, I've I, I've been fortunate to do most of the stuff I want to do. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind, and this isn't, I'm not necessarily this sort of person, but I wouldn't mind like going to the south of New Zealand and doing some of the like fun stuff where you run down a mountain in a bowl or yeah. you do a bungee jump or something like that. It's, yeah. Like, like those Thanks, sorts of yeah. things kind of appeal. So that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you've worked with athletes across different sports um, at WACE. Is there a sport that you've seen and thought, wow, that would be that would be pretty cool. I'd like to give that a crack one day. I worked a lot with kayakers um, and they, some of the, so I was fortunate at the time I was working with kayakers, um, five of four, five of the crew that I worked with, um, they made an Olympic team. So they were good quality, which had nothing to do with me, but I was, just happened to be around as a cheerleader. Um, yep. But they um, they challenged me one day. They said, hop in, hop in the boat if you can paddle out to the middle of the river. Uh, where we used to train, we'll give you 500 bucks. I was like, and I'd paddled like um, in some probably more stable, you know, sea kayaks, um, surf kayaks yep. and stuff. So I hopped in all confident that I was about to <laughs> get a payday and I made it about two paddle strokes before I fell in. So <laughs> I would like to get better at that but just don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. And do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Uh, oh, it sounds really corny if I said it. Uh, but I did. I had a lecture yesterday to third years, and I did mention that my 
not my motto, but something that's always a good practice is to say yes as often as you can to things because the experience you get from saying yes will enlighten and surprise you as to what you can do and you have to get, I mean, and, and that will lead you to many other things um, to the point where you get good at saying yes that you then have to get good at saying no. And once you yeah. have to start get good at, when you have to start thinking about how to get good at saying no, you know you've done a good job at saying yes. Yes, yeah. That's a good. Oh, one. I could certainly relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, last one. What's one thing you can't live without when you're traveling um, around the around the world? So for your conferences and and things like that, is there a particular thing that you just have to take with you? First thing that goes in my suitcase are running shoes, goggles, and bathers. Good work. Yep. Yep. Like it. Yep. Whether they get used or not is another question, but they're in my bag. They're in there. They're ready. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say if you're going to you know Vancouver in December or something like that, or the <laughs> uh, the uh, was it the sports nutrition conference, Steph, you went to in uh, in Newcastle yeah. in the UK. Yuck. It's always the week before Christmas. Yeah, and it gets dark yeah. there at like two thirty p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I yeah. never understood why they run that conference there at that time of year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's yeah. That's all. Thank you so much for your time. Cool. Thanks, guys. That was that was fun. That was a wealth of information, um, which was fantastic. And I know um, our listeners will get a lot out of this. Um, I guess just to summarize some of the key points that um, Pete made, um, yeah, can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the, the first thing is, um, you know, athletes maybe slightly more likely to be iron deficient than the general population, but it's actually not that much more. Um, it is, you know, iron deficiency is fairly common even in non-athletes as well. Mm. Um, and obviously the athletic population reflects society as a whole. So if, if a large chunk of the population is going to be iron deficient, then a large chunk of the, the athlete population is also going to be iron deficient. Um, but there are some specific processes that go on around exercise specifically that make that probably more likely in someone who's doing a lot of exercise and particularly um, the role of, of hepcid in the hormone you talked about that um, responds to the, the stress of exercise and the, the inflammatory response to exercise. And, and because of that, um, sort of reduces the the ability to absorb iron from from food uh, when that hepcidin level is up. Um, that said, you know as the the recommendations have changed over the years, um, actually the post exercise period ironically is is one of the better times to to supplement with iron. But if we come back to you know do I even need supplements in the first place? I think that's a really important question to to answer before you just go down to the pharmacy and and start buying some tablets. Um, is to, to work out, you know, do you actually need uh, iron? And the first thing, obviously, is to get a blood test to, to have a look at that. Um, as you said in the, in the rant, there's, you know, lots of different reasons that people could be tired. Iron might be one of those, and you might want to do that blood test to uh, either confirm that or at least exclude it as a reason and then, you know, look at other factors um, in terms of, you know, sleep, nutrition, training, all of those kind of things. Um, and then when you do get your result back, um, there's a few different things to look at, so it can be a little bit confusing. So getting professional advice on interpreting those levels is going to be really important. But there is those different stages um, of iron depletion and, and iron deficiency, and it's not really until the haemoglobin is impacted, you know, the, the iron deficiency anemia, uh, which is generally a, a ferritin less than 20 and a, and a suppressed haemoglobin as well, that we, we you know, universally see... Um, performance decrements there and, and people really struggling from a performance point of view. 
And so I guess the question is, you know, if you are iron deficient and you do need um, to supplement, what's the best way to do that? Obviously, there's tablets, there's injections or infusions more commonly these days. Uh, the infusion will, will raise the level enormously and very quickly because um, it's going straight into the vein. Uh, so that would generally be done if someone was was really anemic and or needed to you know boost their iron stores very quickly uh, because the the absorption of iron from the gut um, kind of is a, a limiting factor to how much you can get in from food and tablets. Um, so if you do need iron tablets, uh, that's usually um, either maintenance to maintain a, a certain level if your diet's lacking in iron, or to to bring it back up when it's um, you know sort of a little bit low but not drastically low, uh, but it will take some weeks to to see that level improve. In terms of the best time to take the supplement, as we said, you know straight after exercise at this stage, the the best evidence we have to date is that that's probably a good time to take it. That sort of first half hour post exercise, we seem to absorb more of the iron, um, and you know taking it every second day might be better in terms of um, tolerating the iron tablets and we absorb more of the iron that we're taking. Um, that said, you know, if you're taking more iron more often, you'll get more into the system. It's just a less efficient way of, of doing that supplementation. And then we have um, newer forms of iron um, like that um, multifer um, as a, an alternative potentially to, to ferrous sulfate if you are getting some of those gastrointestinal symptoms and that does seem to uh, be similarly effective, although it is a bit more expensive than, than ferrous sulfate tablets. Um, have I missed anything, Steph? I think that's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah, no, you did well. Hit it on the head. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very good. Good summary. Um, and so if um, for people they want to ask us any questions, give us some feedback, um, hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, and then on um, the podcast platforms, all the popular um, podcast platforms, we're, we're on there. Yep, absolutely. So if anyone yeah. wants to yep. hit us up on social media, at The Long Munch is, is where to go. And then, yeah, for the, the different podcasting platforms, if it's available, if you're happy to give us a, a rating or a review, we'd, we'd certainly appreciate that. Or, yeah, as you said, any feedback, positive or constructive, yeah, we're always, always keen to hear from people and, and see what we can do to to help answer those questions out there. Yeah, yep. And the final thing is our athlete that we have following up um, with Pete's to talk to us about her experience with, um, with iron deficiency, anemia, uh, is the one and only Miss Ellie um, Pashley. Um, I should say Mrs. Ellie Pashley. Uh, so she's a elite marathoner, elite Australian marathoner. Um, and so, yeah, we're lucky enough to talk to her about her experience and, um, and how she's managed it. And Ellie, you know, trains at a really elite level. She's done some altitude training and um, she's um, had a lot of experience with, um, you know, iron deficiency and supplementation. So um, it'll be great to get Ellie's feedback on how she's gone with it and um, and hopefully you know all athletes can learn from what we've um, just learned from um, the fabulous Pete. Yep absolutely all right well I think that brings us to the end of today's podcast Steph so I think uh, you know until next week when we have a chat to, to Ellie have a, have a great week everyone and we'll see you next time. Awesome see you guys.